David, good morning. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you this morning. I, I'm realizing, for those of you who are paying attention during the worship, that uh, this stand is not living out its purpose. So this is not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about something that hopefully is going to invite all of us into something significant. Well, Helen Keller um, was an incredible woman. I did more reading on her this week than I ever have in the past. She's a woman of courage and, and action. Though, as you know, she was both blind and deaf. Uh, she left this lasting legacy on the world. And um, she was once asked if there was anything more difficult or more challenging than, than or maybe just worse than being blind. And her response was quick. She said, yes being able to see and not having any vision. Being able to see, but not being able to really see. That's a pretty remarkable statement. If you think about it, here's a woman who couldn't see, who had a clear sense of what her calling and movement in the world was supposed to be. And it's a statement that pierces us because it makes us go like, the thing that we just take for granted, which of course that we can just go about seeing is maybe not as significant as something that we, of course, really need, and two, maybe few of us have, which is being able to hold on to that we know we can see, but, but we lack vision. So when it comes to seeing vision, when it comes to being able to just, well, see, period, um, clarity really is the essential thing, right? Uh, which is why, of course, many of us wear glasses. I look out here and several of you have glasses. And I would say probably all of us in some way, shape, or form use glasses for this very purpose in order to have clarity as we see. Now, some of you have, you know, the corrective glasses for, you know, short-sightedness or, or, far, or far-sightedness. Yeah, that's right. Short-sightedness or fart-sightedness is not it. That's actually really hard to say. Far-sightedness. Um, it's easy to type. Hard to say, turns out. Um, and of course, all of us wear sunglasses, right? We want to see clearly when the sun is bright, and we need the glasses to be able to see clearly when it's bright outside. And of course, some of us, like when I was a kid, would pop the lenses out of some glasses because I thought I'd look more studious, you know, they're smarter and, I don't know, maybe just better with some, some glasses. Didn't do that very long, but because, um, you know, nothing like a little mockery to get you to quit that. Um, but for all of us, I imagine we've probably done the thing where we've gone and worn the weirdest glasses of all, which are those 3D glasses, right? We've gone to a movie, and it was actually quite, a, like, quite late into my life that I went and saw a true 3D movie. And if you go to see a you know, 3D movie, the latest Marvel movie, or the latest Pixar, or the latest Star Wars, there's just something that comes in that viewing experience as you watch a 3D movie that's different, right? The action of the movie jumps out of the screen and into life. I remember on my first time going and seeing it, I was so like taken by it that I started looking around and I saw this little kid who was a couple seats down actually like reaching because right, it comes at you. Now, they're goofy and they feel weird when they're on. You do get used to them, right, after a little while. But one of the things that I don't know if you've ever done to, is to take them off during the movie. Have you, have you done that before? Well, there's a reason why you have 3D glasses on a 3D movie, right? Because it's just a blur, right? It's like a slurry slush of movie pictures, and you have to have them on. Watching a 3D movie without 3D glasses is, well, without glasses, it makes not a whole lot of sense. You lose the focus. The movie starts happening, of course, but it's not clear to you. 
or the invitation with our 3D glasses, of course, is to experience the movie fully. So I bring this up because I think that what's happening oftentimes to, to many of us is just like in the theater, so in our lives, too many of us are, are wearing, we're, we're wearing, well, we're actually watching a 3D version of our life in 2D. We're watching a 3D version of our life in 2D and God's wanting to write a story in the world and he's wanting to write a story in our lives, pulling out the pages of the Bible, and bringing them vividly into our lives, into the places that we live, that we work, that we play. But too many of us, if not, are seeing life as a blur, unclear. So what does it look like when you look at your life, when you think about your life? For some of us, we're, we're, we're prone to be nearsighted, right? We're able to see just what's right in front of us, the obstacles, the, the, the challenges, and also the opportunities, what's, what's right here, what's standing right in front of us. We're able to see clearly what we're facing, but we're just really unable to see beyond that, to see what we can't quite get our eyes on. For others, we're more prone to farsightedness in our life, right? We're able to look out and, and beyond. And, we see kind of this broad vision, this big picture of our future, but, but we keep bumping into daily or weekly obstacles that, that just consistently prevent us from arriving at that preferred future. So the question is, what, what if we could all live with a vision of tomorrow that not only inspires our future, but helps us get to it, get into it in the right now? What if we all could increasingly live on purpose with true 2020 vision for our lives? What if we were aware of who God has made us to be and, and completely committed to what God has called us to do and compelled to, to proactively step into that picture of the future, to see that future not just as, as an idea but, or as a, as a wish, but as a potential, a real reality for what God has dreamt for us. A God dream that not only comes into greater focus and that we step into on a daily basis, but that, that begins to prepare us to leave a legacy for those around us. Which is why this year, as a church, that's what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be calling each other to, to live in a growing alignment with all that God has designed us to be. It's a call to, to stop settling for a lesser version of the view that God had in mind when, of course, he crafted you in his imagination before you were born. And we'll see that in a second. It's a call to step into the, to that version of who you are that is both strong and confident, that only changes you, but also changes everyone in the world around you. Believing that God has had this vision, this dream about your life from the beginning of time, and because he doesn't settle for less, that we wouldn't settle for less either. Well, the good news for all of us is that um, we're not the only ones, we're not the first ones uh, in history who've struggled with vision. All it takes is a kind of a rapid or a one-year perusal of the Bible. Most of the great leaders in the Bible struggled with vision. They, they couldn't see well. They, think about Moses. Moses struggled as a convicted killer on the backside of a desert to see what God had made him to do and be, even when God had told him what to do and who he was. Gideon, of course, struggled to, to work at a threshing floor and a wine press because he couldn't imagine the mighty man of valor that God had made him to be, the redeemer of Israel. 
And of course, the prophet Samuel, right? Samuel's pretty awesome, but he's one who couldn't have the vision that, that the king, the future king, could be any other than the impressive older sons of Jesse instead of the son who wasn't even invited to the anointing party, the shepherd boy David. And of course, Stephen the Apostle Paul had to literally be knocked to the ground and blinded for a few days so that he could see correctly. And today we're going to see that what Moses and Gideon and Samuel and, and Paul and many others all struggled with is the same thing that the prophet Jeremiah struggled with. In fact, the whole book of Jeremiah is kind of an inside look at one prophet and really honestly one nation that struggles to see what God sees. That's why the prophet Jeremiah and actually the book of Jeremiah, which we're going to spend a few weeks in, is a perfect place for us to gain vision and to gain clarity for our own lives. So let's jump into it. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here in Jeremiah chapter 1, um, we, we jump into the beginning of this book and we listen to Jeremiah's struggle to see both who he is and what God wants him to do with his life. It's a fantastic story because, frankly, it's one that we all can probably in some way, shape, or form relate to and help to start on this journey of living out our calling and learning what's in one really important truth, that you are more unique than you think you are. When Jeremiah's story opens, the kingdom of, well, the, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah is in a pretty rough shape. It's in a pretty perilous predicament. Just a century earlier, the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by Syria and deported and taken out, and they watched it happen. And now the southern kingdom is on the verge of, well, facing desolation from an even more powerful army of the Babylonians. And even though Judah has had this amazing king, King Josiah, one of the greatest and probably godliest kings of all its history, the reforms that he put into place just haven't really gotten to the heart to the souls and to the lives of the people. For most people in, just, in Jeremiah's day, we could say that their life was, well, a bit of a blur. The threat of attack was very real, and the deliverance of God, the, the story that he brought rest 
a story of the past was, well, not really connected to their present in any tangible way. And so they were just going through the motions. Kind of an unbothered, unencumbered life, living to satisfy themselves, kind of forsaking God and his ways and, and using everything that God had given them to just serve themselves. And it's at, right here at this point that God calls this man, this Jeremiah, to be a mouthpiece to the nation. And, and God does this. He, he makes a few remarkable statements to Jeremiah. And I hope that uh, these remarkable statements that he makes to him will encourage you today. And the first thing he points out is that, Jeremiah, you're a, you're a one-of-a-kind divine design. Like you're one-of-a-kind divine design. I'm doing something. Verse 4, now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God says, Jeremiah, listen, I created you specifically for a one-of-a-kind assignment right now. Now, did you hear the objection that he brings up? It's like this weird combination between a Moses objection and a Timothy objection, right? Like, I, I, don't, house, I, don't, I don't speak good, and I'm young. Moses says the same thing, Lord, I, I don't speak well. And the Lord answers him, what? Who made the mouth, right? Jeremiah has this objection. He says, no, I don't I think I'm the right one. And God responds to him. He says, no, no, Jeremiah, you are my workmanship for this moment. I am the Lord and I know what I'm doing. I am declaring it to you and I will... I'll see you in a second. I will touch your mouth. This is, of course, a kind of a direct kind of echo of what the Apostle Paul brings out in Ephesians chapter 2. Exactly what Paul is trying to tell the Ephesians. He begins at the beginning of chapter 2, talks about the broad picture of the gospel, right? How we get there through the, the picture of God's redemptive work on our behalf, that we were enemies, and, and, but God, who is rich in mercy... By grace, we have been saved. And then he gets to this moment, this, this general reality that's happened to all who put their faith in him. And we get to verse 10 of chapter 2, and Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This Greek word, for, which is, we translate as workmanship or, or masterpiece, it's the word poema. You've never heard that before. It's the idea that, that's where we get our word poem, right? It's the idea that, that we are God's poem, that we are his, his highest work of art. And as a work of art, that he, he's designed us for good works, which he has an idea about to be worked out in us and through us, that he has prepared for us to do, to participate in, to live in, to live out. In other words, God has been dreaming, dreaming about your life from the beginning of time. That's what he tells Jeremiah. He says, listen, I've been, I've been dreaming about your life from the beginning of time. Before, he says in verse 5, before I formed you in your womb, I knew you. And, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nation. That's also what God's saying to each one of us and wants to remind each of us today. 
that before you came into existence, you were in God's imagination, that he made you exactly who you were made to be in order to do everything that he has called you to do. There's no one on the planet that's like you. He formed you in the womb, that he knows you, and that he's destined you for significant things. Maybe not grandiose things, but significant things. Maybe not extraordinary things that we might put out there, but for significant things, for real purpose. Now, the truth, I would say, is even though the idea, this particular concept is repeated multiple times in the scriptures, most of us have trouble believing it. Just as, frankly, Jeremiah had a hard time believing it. We convince ourselves that there's maybe nothing, either, well, one or two options, either there's nothing special or significant enough about who we are that we would have anything to offer. The self-deprecatory kind of picture. Like, no, I, like, I know me. I know the mess I've made. I know who I come from. I know what I, I you know, no, there's, there's nothing for me to offer the Lord. Like, if I could just, you know, stay small and weak in, in the corner and just not make another problem, that's what I offer. That our abilities aren't that significant, that our passions aren't interesting. And even if we're convinced that who God has made us to be, well, most of us may believe that just our environment's never going to let that happen. We're caught in the haze of the commonplace. We're just rarely glimpsing what extraordinary creation God has purposed in us. Who's made us to be. So we, so we settle for a mundane life with muffled expectations of what God could ever do through us. It's okay. Drop the bar. We're more comfortable, I would say, in our circles with the generalities of our faith, right? Let's just kind of talk general Christian sense of calling, that living with a sense of general, you know, disciple being, disciple making. That we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. That we're to glorify God with our entire beings, that we are to make disciples. Those are general callings, and, and they belong to everyone. And they are absolutely true, and they are 100% pivotal. But, but it just doesn't end there. The question that, that I want to push in on a little bit is, how are you to love the Lord your God? How are you to love your neighbor, particularly in light of who you've been made to be, in light of the gifting, in light of the passions, in light of the ways in which God has crafted and worked out your story? How are you to glorify God, particularly? What does you glorifying God look like that's different than someone else glorifying God? How are you being created and gifted and called to make disciples? Not some rubber stamp method of disciple making, but living out of who you were molded to be by a creator. Now, of course, there's processes and there's avenues and there's means and there's tools and things that we learn to do. Of course, of course. But the question is, is it just a generic, broad, just being someone who loves the Lord, loves other people, glorifies God, and makes disciples? And the answer is yes to all those things. But many of us hide behind the generalities and don't step into them in the reality of who you've been made and how you're called to do those things. God doesn't make generic art. He doesn't. 
think of it this way. Uh, I've been seeing a bunch of commercials and on Instagram or other places for like shirts that fit great. Now I'm a guy, so it's shirts that fit great for guys. Have you guys seen those, especially t-shirts? Like how many of us have gone right and bought a shirt and you put it on at the store and you're like, okay, cool. Then you bring it home and you wash it once and it's like, it didn't do what you thought it would do. And you put it on again and you're like, is this the same shirt? Right? It's like, it's either like, it was either like a medium that became a way small suddenly or, or, or it's, you know, you bought it and you're like, I'm going to wash it. It's going to drop a size and it doesn't. Or, you know, it's like too tight around the neck, but too floppy around the, you know, it's too, too short, but too long. It's, that, that, I mean, is that, does anyone else like seriously? Like, that's like life, right? You end up with a closet full of clothes that don't quite fit just right. Now, if you've had the fortune of the perseverance to go and find a shirt or Maybe you've had like someone like tailor a shirt or a, or a dress or a suit for you, and then you put that on. Like, how does that feel? Like, it belongs, right? Like, it, like it, it fits. It's consistent with who you are. And I don't, I've noticed this is what's amazing. Like, it doesn't matter the body type. If you find clothes that fit your body type, you look great. Is that not true? Ladies, you guys know this way better. Men were just like, it, I don't know, it has two sleeves and a neck hole. Like, it's going to work. But, but for most of you, you know this, right? Like, it really matters because it fits, because it belongs. And I think too many of us end up with our lives with just a closet full of clothes that don't fit. We borrowed them from other people or we've, over the years, just been like, I think this is what it's supposed to look like. And they're, they're generic set of shirts or T-shirts and none of them fit right. We don't belong to them. They don't belong to us. What's true of clothes is too true of our lives. I wonder how many of us have, have shrunken back in our life. It looks nothing like the life that God designed it to be in you, through you. How many of us have been burned by trying to live up to some form of an American dream that every time we step into it deeper, it does the very thing it will do and that it crushes our soul it's elusive for anyone who wants to live it healthily. We want to abandon it. Or how many of us are just caught in between? Never finding things that seem to really fit and therefore resigning ourselves to just going through a mundane, ill-fitting life. Well, Jeremiah seems to teach us, chapter 1 here, that this is not how we have to live our lives. That God has designed us, that he's formed us, and that he's placed us, literally placed his hands on us before we were even born, before you became who you became today. Not only that, but, but listen, if, if we let him, he will tailor our lives in just the right size to accomplish everything that we think, no, everything that he desires to accomplish everything that he has imagined in us and for us from the beginning of time. If we let him, if we participate with him, we are one of a kind divine design. But he goes on in verse eight to point out a second thing that our, our divine design points to our divine destiny, that God has a purpose that he is working out in and for us to live out. We're designed in a particular way to live out a particular kind of destiny. Verse 8, do not be afraid of them, he says, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. 
Verse 9, then, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's divine design point, point him towards a, a God-purposed destiny. What we find in these, these three verses is exactly what that destiny was supposed to look like. God tells Jeremiah that, that he's going to be a planter and a builder, not a planter like a farmer, not a builder like an architect, but he's going to be one who's going to be planting and building with his words. But this planting and this building is not going to happen on neutral ground and not going to happen on fertile ground. In fact, in order to plant that he's going to need to plow up some things that have, been, that have been growing where they shouldn't have, that he's going to have to, in order to build, that there's going to need to be some tearing down and some removing. It won't be easy work, but it will be profoundly good work. Not everyone will appreciate the work that he's doing. Actually, if you read Jeremiah, you realize most people don't appreciate any of the work that he does, the entirety of his life. So don't confuse the sense of God's calling to easy, trouble-free, without opposition. But what is it that God promises to Jeremiah? He says, listen, I've, I've designed you, and now I'm going to destine you for a certain kind of work. And what is his promise? Well, these are the words that God gives to everyone throughout all of Scripture that he has designed and then sent out. I will be with you. I will be with you. These are the words that he gave to Moses when he was on the backside of a mountain, when he told him to go to Pharaoh and to let his people go. Even though Moses is a wanted criminal and was afraid and couldn't speak, he said, I will be with you. These are the words that he gives to Joshua when, when Joshua is at a place where he's like, how am I supposed to fill the shoes of Moses? He says, I will be with you. That's what he says to Gideon, when Gideon's not sure how in the world he's supposed to be the right person to deliver Israel from the thousands and tens of thousands of Midianites, he says to Gideon, I will be with you. These are the words he gives to Solomon. When Solomon's not sure in any way, shape, or form that he can live up to his father David's legacy, he says, I will be with you. In other words of Jesus, as he looks at his disciples and he gives them the great commission gives us the great commission. He says, I will be with you. That's what Paul gives to Timothy as he passes the torch to the next generation of the church. He said, the Lord will be with you. And it's what God continues to say to each one of us today. It's what he declares to you that he's been designing and purposing in his great imagination what your life will look like. And he says, and I will be with you in it. I will go alongside. I, I will empower it. If you'll let me continue to form and remake you, I will help you step into your divine purpose. Loved ones, what's true of Jeremiah is true of you today. Not exactly the same way, right? You don't have to go plant and build and you don't have a 
a hostile people that are going to like throw you into a cistern and leave you for dead and then drag you off to Egypt. That's probably not your story, right? God has formed and he's committed to form a future with you, in you, on purpose. God of the universe has designed you. It comes with a tailored divine purpose. But if we're going to forge this future with him, we're going to have to choose to step into it with him. One of the ways um, I was thinking about this, I, I like, um, I'm one of those people that more naturally wants to just like lean on talent, right? I mean, I'm one of those people that didn't have to study super hard in school, like still did pretty well. You know, if that's you, you know, then there's those of you who like worked super, super hard and like you earned it all the way, you know what I mean? And so that's never always been the case for me. So, so when I look at something like this, like the idea of like, it's going to be a, a participation with God to get a sense of clarity around what it means for me to walk with him into the purposes and designs that he has for my life. I can be like, cool, so can we like halfway do this? Like, can I get all the benefits and, and not really full engagement? And I was thinking about this in relation to the... Uh, the total eclipse that we had, uh, the great American eclipse that we had, solar eclipse we had in 2017. Everyone should have been born for that. You know, it's not one of those, hey, you guys remember JFK? You know, it's, we were all there, at least I think, right? In the United States, probably. If you remember, you know, there was this, it was like the first time in 99 years, right? And there was like this major eclipse that was coming from the West Coast, from Oregon, all the way down through South Carolina. And there was this, this band, this 70 mile band where you were going to be able to get, and we started hearing it from like conversations on TV, like, hey, there's going to be, there's, a, there's an area called the total eclipse. You guys remember that? And like they had this little line, and like total, and you know, total eclipse of the heart. Anyway, so it's just like there's a sense of like there's like oh, and and I was like, it came like right up here, right? I mean, it was like up in Athens. I think they had like a Sanford Stadium like watch party for the for the. Some of you may have gone. Did anybody go? No. No one? Okay. So, but there was, okay, so there's two different dynamics, right? There was this piece of like, you can, and you kept hearing, like there's 100% total eclipse or the totality, right? To a totality of an eclipse. And, and you could, you could go places. You go to like, you know, to Chattanooga or whatever. Norma, did you go? Oh, you stayed here. Okay. Um, I just, I don't know. I assumed, you know, the science thing would make you go. So, uh, you know, if you're in New York, like you had to drive, you know, here it's like, I oh, can I go to Athens? But that's where I was like, cause I was like, Hey, so we're going to be like 97% of the, so, pff, that's got to be good enough, right? And so I, you know, stayed in my office and was working. And then at, like, if that was, did anybody go into the actual total eclipse? Oh, two, wow, two people in the back. Oh, some others. Others. Oh, oh, wow. A big quadrant back in the back. Well done. Okay. So y'all can tell me if this ends up being true because this is how it played itself out. So for me, I just kind of walked outside. It got a little kind of dark-ish and kind of gray-ish, you know? And, you know, you're like, okay, this is cool. And then it was like, all right, we'll go back to work, right? I mean, that's kind of what it was like. It's like, oh, that was such a cool experience. And, you know, it had been built up for like, I don't know, six weeks as to this amazing thing. And, and we kind of got a glimpse of it and it was pretty awesome or whatever. And not really. It was just kind of a, a, an average experience for me. It was like, how much can three degrees matter, right? I mean, 97% versus 100%. Same, same, same. If you get a 90% on your test, you got an A, you know? Like, it's pretty cool, but it's not something that I would tell my grandchildren about. But then I talked to people who were there, who, who went and actually experienced the total eclipse. And, and if you hear the accounts of people who were there, and it's, again, I'm sure they're varied, as people are varied, but like it was like a, 
like a spiritual experience. As it turns out, a total eclipse is a, is a fundamentally different thing than a 97% eclipse. Like there are people in, like in tears, people are like, like having heart awakening moments, like watching this unbelievable thing for two minutes as, as like they just take in something that seems like cosmically larger than themselves. Like we all know the sun's up there, but like no one's paying attention. And suddenly like the cosmos is like with us. Okay, that's not what I experienced I had in the parking lot. That park, literally that parking lot out there. It was kind of like, oh, that's, that's really nice. And for others, it, it was an experience that they'll never forget. It was, it was a marking moment. It's something they will tell their grandchildren about. And, and that if you would like to, you can wait, I don't know, another 99 years or something or 50 years. And, and you can do so also. Maybe I will this time too. Maybe. I didn't want to do the traffic. Uh, what's true about the great American eclipse for me and probably for you too is true of the journey of living on purpose. You can choose to live on, on the edge, you know, on the edge of your divine design if you want to. But if, if you do, and, and this year as we invest some time and intentionality and doing some, some sermons, decent sermons to talk about and stories to be told about its impact and its implications, that you'll receive some, you know, engaging truths, but that realistically you'll walk away largely unchanged and unaffected. That's how this typically works. And Jeremiah could have done that in the moment God called him to. He could have been like, I'm just going to stick with some generalities of like, you know, sacrifice at the temple, be good love you in general, serve you in general. Instead, Jeremiah chose to move into the totality of God's shadow, to come under the full shadow of God's design and purpose, his God-intended destiny. And the book of Jeremiah plays out the implications of him having chosen that, stepping his life into the totality of what God had for him. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, it wasn't an easy, easy journey of totality for, for Jeremiah at all. And I would say it's not an easy journey for anyone. But if we choose to put on our 3D glasses, fight through the distractions, the things that are right here, we'll give ourselves fully to a year's journey of intentionality to begin to choose to have an experience that might change the way we see everything, not just what's in front of us. What I believe is that the, um, the greatest opportunity that the Holy Spirit's transforming work is for you to become your, your truest selves. Not like Barney, you are special, you're the only one, you're the only one like you. I don't mean like fluffy, I don't mean that. I mean the truest you that God intended in the moment when in his imagination, when you didn't exist yet, he says, I have a purpose for you. I'm expectant for you. I'm anticipating the movement that I'm about to bring to the world through you. For my glory and to the praise of my name, and for your unbelievable satisfaction and joy. That's what I'm purposing. 
greatest opportunities to become our true selves, to be this powerfully productive disciple in a particular way. You guys remember the 90s bracelets, you know, the What Would Jesus Do bracelets? Dallas Willard took that on because he's Dallas Willard later than he can. Um, and he said, it's the wrong question. He said, the real question is not WWJD. No, rather, it's beginning to clarify. He says, how would Jesus live if he were you? How would Jesus live if he were you? Not how do you become like Jesus in some kind of ethereal way? Like you're not, you're not supposed to be a carpenter unless you're supposed to be a carpenter. But like you're not supposed to go die on the cross. Like that was his, that's his call, right? That's not yours. So what does it mean that we become like Christ? It means we, we live in the way that Jesus would live if he was us, which means it's we live in the way that Jesus would live if he had your job. How would he do your work? How would, if he's married to your spouse, how would he be married to your spouse? If he had your hobbies, how would he, how would he handle your hobbies? If he had your money, how would he invest your money? If he had your children, how would he discipline your children? That's what it means. How? How would Jesus live if he were you? That's the question we're wanting to move towards. And so I'm inviting you to move out of farsightedness and nearsightedness. I'm asking you to consider that you're made more unique than you think. I'm calling you towards moving into a true God-purposed design knowing it with clarity and then moving into God-designed purpose that he has and purposes he has for you right now, like in these days. It's a pretty amazing thing to think that God has been dreaming about your life from the beginning of time. It's kind of that, it's that Psalm 8, right? That, that tension of his glory being somehow appropriated to us. He made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with honor and glory. It's true of Christ and then it's true of us too, the Apostle Paul says. It's, it's, a, very, it's a paradoxical thought. But I believe you can actually get a clear sense of that, to, to know it, to even be able to name it, and then to be able to move into it with intentionality and purpose, to know what to say yes to and what to say no to, to have the kind of confidence you heard in David. He said, like, it's, it's amazing. I've known David for a while now, and to watch some of the things that he just knows what, who he's supposed to be, the things that now in community and especially working together and be able to say, hey, I need this from you. I know you bring this wherever you go. That kind of intentionality and, and purpose. So we want to step into that process together. And again, as I said, like, we can stay on the periphery and just be like, cool, that sounds really nice. I'm just going to continue to be a good disciple of Jesus, and that, that's great. But, but I think there's more. I think it's pretty pivotal that there's more. Because to the degree in which we enter the heart of God and his particular design, his particular understanding of who we are and of what he desires for us, to that degree, we would find ourselves not only wildly satisfied in the way that we live our lives in t potentially really difficult times, but also having a much clearer sense of how we're bringing that glory to God. Having this, knowing the smile of the Father going like, I'm an echo back to you of how you designed me. That's worship. And we're committed to that process as a church because we're committed to you living out your purposes 
to God in your life. So this brings us to the table. As we read earlier, God sent his only son to die for us out of love and by grace, we're able to move towards him. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It's astonishing. But that movement of grace that Christ did on the cross actually invites us to be free, to be our true selves, unabashed, unencumbered, like not pretending to be something we're not, not thinking more of ourselves than we should, and also not thinking less of ourselves in light of what's true about him. I didn't have a Tim Keller quote in my thing, but I'll go ahead and do it since you said it. Tim Keller always says, you can tell someone who really understands the gospel because they're wildly humble and incredibly confident. Someone who's confident but not humble is arrogant. They don't understand the, they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand that, that they're bowed low because of the magnitude of what Christ had to do for them. But they're incredibly confident because they know they're accepted and received in a way because of what he chose to do for you. God is so committed to you living out the totality of what he purposed in you not for your sake, though for your sake, but because it's what you were made to do. It's being in alignment with who he purposed us to be. And he died to make that possible, to free us to be able to do that so that we're not grabbing that stuff to try and be something, but we know we are, and so we step into it with confidence. Are you able to step into the call of God with confidence, knowing his grace? That's what this table invites you to remember. Invites you to take in and then to find rest in as you say, boy, this makes me unbelievably humble, but by the grace of God. And at the same time, incredibly confident to be able to walk out and go like, yeah, God made some stuff with me and I have something to offer. And I will, by his power and for his glory and for the good of everyone that's around me, that's how I'm gonna love my neighbor. That's how I'm gonna make disciples. That's what it's gonna look like when we move out into the world and towards one another with that kind of power. And I wanna be a part of a church where that's happening all the time. And this meal reminds us that that's possible. So as you come, come and receive this. And, and it really, it's, it's an offering, right? We receive his grace and then we offer our lives as a living sacrifice. And that is indeed our worship. And that is our joy. That is our privilege. Let's pray. Father, what is our only hope? in life and death, Christ alone. That is, that is the great news of the gospel that frees us to be able to ask you, that frees us to be able to look at our own lives, to look at what isn't yet, to look at the ways in which we're just like living myopically, nearsighted with the things in front of us and not alive to you. Father, this, we need to repent the ways in which we're just doing stuff for us, trying to make life work, just dealing with the next day. And instead of lifting our eyes up to you and believing that you have a good, powerful purpose that you want us to live out, you have a kingdom for us to participate in. And that it's particular to the way in which you invited us to play a role in. Thank you that we have a role to play, that you've given it to us by your grace and by your power. And so we want to move towards that. And we ask you that you would help us to believe that we are indeed more unique than we would think. And that in that, that you're desiring to deploy us all over the place in a way that brings glory to you, that strengthens your church, and that draws other people to want to live free and alive like that. So Lord, give us courage. Make us bold men and women. 
pray this by the power and the grace of Jesus. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is a meal of both humility and confidence. So come and receive it as God sends you out to the places you go.